Well, last week we jumped back into our study on Luke where we saw how Jesus faced the same kind of temptations that we still face today because the real enemy has not changed. And here's what we're going to dig into more today. His favorite strategies for taking us down remain the same. We're going to dig into those. Go to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, say it with me, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it's been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it is will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, say it with me, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Oh, is the war all around us in our world, our nation, our culture just continues to escalate. One of the best things, right? There's things we can do something about and there's things that we really can't do a lot about. I don't know about you, but I feel better when I start to focus on what what can I do something about? What is my responsibility? Let me help you here. One of the best things you could do as a Christian is to focus on your real enemy. Who is that? Say it louder. And identify and clarify And make yourself more aware of his favorite strategies for taking you down. Because if you know what they are, you can be more alert to them. That's what we're going to work on today. So what can we see from this passage about his strategies? Number one, Satan wants you to doubt who you are as a child of God. Oh, notice how two times in this passage, in verse 3 and 9, he says to Jesus, If you are the Son of God. What's he doing? He's going after his identity. He's stirring up doubt in Jesus' mind as to who he is. Which I hope you realize is the very thing God the Father wanted Jesus to be absolutely sure of. As he launched into his critical mission and ministry. Remember, he's 30 years old now, guys. 
He's been a carpenter. He's 30 years old and he is about to launch into the very purpose and mission for which he'd come. That's why one chapter back in chapter 3 at his baptism, right? At his baptism, God the Father wanted to make absolutely clear who Jesus is and what he thinks about him. That's why it tells us the heavens opened and with a booming voice, God the Father made absolutely clear who Jesus is and what he thinks about him when he said, You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. You are my son, and I'm pleased with you. You are my son, and I'm pleased with you. Do you realize that is still one of the things that God the Father wants his children to absolutely be sure of? Which is why our enemy goes after it relentlessly. One of his favorite strategies, you guys, is still to introduce doubt into our minds as to... Our identity, child of God, and our standing before him, sonship, 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 sonship. You're in the family, and he loves you. You're in the family, and he's pleased with you. You're in the family. Satan still goes after this relentlessly. Why? Well, listen, if he can... If he can rattle you on this, you will stay unsettled and unsure as to where you really stand before God and whether you're really in the family of God or not. Why does that matter? So what? Oh, listen, it matters. This is huge. Here's why it matters so much. Because when you don't know who you are, you can't fight Like a child of God. But instead spend so much of your time fretting like an orphan. Combing over your own life constantly. Never sure whether you're really in the family of God. And where you stand before God. Now stay with me. And when you're not sure. You go down much more easily. In the face of temptation and battles. You go down. When you you are not sure that you're in the family of God. And not sure where you stand in the presence of God. You collapse quickly in the face of temptation. It matters. These two things are connected. One fuels the other. I would say it to you this way. Your measure of assurance. How much assurance do you have that you know You're a child of God. I know I'm saved. I know he loves me. Your measure of assurance directly affects your level of endurance. How you can fight. How long you can fight. Will you persevere? I try to go to the gym three times a week. I know it doesn't look like it. You say you should go more. I try to go to the gym three times a week. And here's what you'll find if you go to the gym. They've got the entire place laid out with clusters of machines that are grouped together based on muscle groups. Here's all the shoulder machines, back machines. Here's all the leg machines. Here's bicep, triceps. 
Different machines are focused on strengthening different muscle groups. And you want to hit them all. You don't want to be that guy. They're still there. I see them. Your arms are like this. Yeah, I can't wear normal shirts. But my legs are stick thin. What happened? Didn't work on those. Okay. You, you want to use them all. And if you want to take it to the next level, you can pay. I did for a personal trainer. I was, I was in my early 50s. I like, tell me, what should I be doing now? I'm doing the same stuff I was doing since football in high school. Not good. Things have changed based on my age, based on my body, based on my problems, based on. And it was so helpful. But here's what you'll learn. If you work with a personal trainer, you will almost always hear them talk about your core. Oh, you got to strengthen your core. Oh, you, I had massive back problems, lower back problems. Oh, you got to strengthen your core. You got to strengthen your core. You got to strengthen your core. That's not very exciting. It doesn't show up looking like anything amazing. But if you don't strengthen your core, just these basic core muscles, everything else you do is not as effective. And you are still vulnerable to injury and weakness and going down. Stay with me. In God's spiritual gym, listen to me. Your identity and assurance of salvation is your core. It's your core. For most of us, he would scoot us over to those machines and say, work that some more. Get settled on that. Some of you... I've been a pastor 35 years now. It, it, it is huge how many Christians still are like, I, I don't know. I don't really know if I'm saved. I'm beat up constantly by the enemy. And I don't think I'm good enough. And I don't think I'm going And they say, oh, I've grown a lot with end times. I understand end times. I just constantly doubt my salvation. Folks, set aside everything else. If your core is not strong spiritually and your core is identity and assurance of salvation, then you are vulnerable and at risk for easily being taken down. 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 Your assurance directly affects your level of endurance. What you can go through how long you can face temptation, how confident you are, how long you'll fight the spiritual battle. We looked at a passage last week. I want, to, I want to go there again. We looked at that classic spiritual warfare passage, right? What do you think of when you think spiritual warfare? What has God given us for the fight? What chapter in the Bible? There you go. Go there again. Ephesians 6. Ephesians chapter 6 because I want to dig into something that often gets overlooked. Ephesians chapter 6 is where the Apostle Paul tells us about things we have to know and do and lay hold of. If we're going to keep from going down and even being destroyed. Look at it again with me starting in verse 14. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Put on the blessed breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, I'm going to date myself. I grew up in the church, you guys. I've heard this passage taught so many times, even on a children's level, right? I saw a flannel graph. Hello. The soldier was slapped onto the little velvet thing, and he stuck there. And then we added a belt and the breastplate and the sword and the shield and the helmet. I've heard this taught 
So many times, even on a children's level. But verse 15 is a critical verse that I do not think gets emphasized like it should. And even when it does get talked about, it so often is misinterpreted. Here's what I'm talking about. Because verse 15 is talking about feet and the gospel. If you've been in the church and you know anything else, you know, you know that verse in Isaiah that says, How beautiful are the feet of those who... So we make this assumption, feet, gospel. Oh, he's talking about strap on your gospel boots and get out there and share the gospel with lots of people, right? Be honest. You don't have to raise your hand. How many of you thought, yeah, that's what it's talking about? Not... The whole passage, if you read it, you'll see it's not about moving and going anywhere. Think about how many times Markham and it's a stand. Stand, it's about standing, not going. Standing, not going. And so when he says, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. What is Paul talking about? He's not talking about us proclaiming the gospel to other people who are lost. He's talking about you as a Christian being so convinced of it for yourself. The gospel of peace has settled for you where you stand before God. I am a child of God. I have peace with God. I have no shame. I have no condemnation. I have no record of my sins that will ever be used against me or brought against me in the presence of God. Because all of my sins, past, present, future, have been forgiven and laid on Christ. And His righteousness is mine. So that that's my standing before a holy God. Oh my goodness, you're able to stand with the gospel boots of peace, confident of who you are and what God the Father thinks of you. And you say, you know, every time I've heard it, it's all about the sword, it's all about the shield. Trust me, it's all important. But this gets overlooked, right? Feet and footwear doesn't seem like that big of a deal regarding battle. Roman soldiers understood differently. This was being written in a day of Roman soldiers, and Paul is writing it when he was often strapped to a Roman soldier. He knew what they looked like. He knew what was going on. Do you realize Roman soldiers in that day wore boots that had bits of metal and nails embedded in the soles so that they could grip the ground when they squared off with an enemy and took a stand in battle? It was hand-to-hand combat. No tanks, no rocket launchers. Their feet wouldn't slip. Doesn't matter how good you are with a sword. If you're slipping, your aim is off, right? You are the one who's vulnerable, who cannot take a stand and hold the ground. It was critical. Oh, they understood something that we need to understand better today about our spiritual battles that we face, you guys. Here's what they understood. Regardless of your strengths, you say, I'm really strong in this, or any other weapon that you may have, the advantage always goes to the one whose feet are not slipping. The advantage always goes to the one who has a firm stance and is not slipping. 
And so our enemy, as, as deceptive and clever as he is, goes after our feet relentlessly. Our feet, our feet. If you've put this in the category of, yeah, I still just sometimes get way out of sorts and I, I'm not settled on whether assurance of salvation, this is not a little thing, you guys. If you want to be able to face temptation and fight spiritual battles and do well by the grace of God, you better be sure and not have your feet slipping, slipping, slipping. You're much more vulnerable, much more weak, much more at risk. Last week we talked about the power of a specific promise that you carry with you into the battle. So let me help you here and just instead of just saying, hey, get sure on this. Go, be warm, be filled. Let me start you, okay? There's lots in the Bible that can give us that assurance of who we are in Christ and that you can know that you are saved. So let me point you to one. The power of a specific promise that you could carry with you as your enemy goes after your feet, after your feet, after your feet. A promise you can stand on. Go to John chapter 10. I don't hear pages. Go, go. Turn there in your Bible. Maybe we've got too many apps flickering and that just is no good. I'm just kidding. Get there somehow where they got an app in your lap or a real Bible with real power because it's paper, paper. Yes, I'm old. Paper, paper to the glory of God. John 10, 27. Jesus speaking, my sheep. Hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them. What kind of life? Say it louder. It can't end, you guys. Eternal life. And they will never perish And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, I'm going to poke here and my, my intent is to help you. But you guys, I can't tell you how many times I've heard a believer say, yeah, but I can jump out of his hand. I can jump out. No one else can snatch, but I. You know what often is the problem with the person who struggles with assurance of salvation? They don't lack assurance. They have too much assurance in what they think and what they feel. And not enough assurance in what God's word says. They don't lack assurance. They think if I feel it or I think it, it must be right. I just think, I just think, but I'm too bad. You don't understand. You don't understand. God knows. And there's a verse that says, let God be true and every man a liar, including yourself. Did you know you could lie to yourself? Satan is a liar. He's, he's lying to you and your own flesh is lying. But, but, but I'm too bad. But I'm too bad. But I'm too bad. You don't lack assurance, my friend. It's where you're placing it. You are confident in what you feel and what you think. And you're saying that is superior to what God's word says. You need to submit to the authority of God's Word and put your confidence in God's word and say, that's what he says, regardless of what I feel or think. That could be a turning point. 
that would cause you to be able to stand like you've never been able to stand before. Not in arrogance. Not in arrogance. God, the Father, wants His children to be sure of who they are and of what He thinks of them. He loves you. He loves you. There's no condemnation. There's no shame. Your sins will never be thrown in your face and used against you again. I know. I know it's mind-boggling. Trust me. I know you think that's too good to be true. Our God is like no other being. You're thinking of him the way you think of people in this world. And he is not like anyone in this world. Our God is that loving and forgiving. Say, thank you, Jesus. And it's your choice to believe. You're putting your assurance somewhere. Stop saying you don't have faith. You don't have assurance You're exercising faith in you and what you feel. And you're saying, my feelings trump God's word. Oops, didn't mean to use that word. Trump God's word. Don't do that. Don't do that. Oh, what could happen in 2021 if more of you became not arrogant, but confident with a firm stance of who you are? And as the fiery darts come your way, if your feet aren't slipping, it's a game changer as to how well you fight and face temptation. Work on your spiritual core this year. Don't leave that as, oh, well, whatever. Work on your spiritual core this year of identity and assurance and get a hold of this because without this you will go down and maybe stay down. Let me show you a second strategy. Number two, Satan wants you to turn legitimate desires into ultimate demands. Look at verse three. He says, command this stone to become bread. What is going on? See, you need to realize The way he came at Jesus is the same way he comes at us. It is not likely that this year Satan will whisper to you, start a brothel. That would be good. You're like, I ain't going to do that. It's not heinous sins that he usually offers believers. It's legitimate needs and desires being offered in a way that make them ultimate. Or in a way that you don't wait for God to provide. That's what gets us. We say, all I want is, right? How often do you say, all I want is, especially when you're not getting it. And if it seems like something, this is good. This is not terrible. If you want a good thing too much, it can become destructive in your life. He says to Jesus, he knows Jesus is hungry. This is a legitimate desire and need for food. But here's what you need to understand. Maybe you've never picked up on it. Do you realize Jesus never used his supernatural God power to meet his own needs? Did you ever think about that? Never, ever. He used it to meet the needs of others. Instead, because this is important, he's the God man, fully man, fully. He modeled for us trusting God and waiting on God to provide for his need. 
Scour the Gospels this year. See if you find any example where Jesus is tired, exhausted. He's like, I'm not laying down in the hull of the boat on a wooden floor. Are you kidding me? Watch this, guys. Tempur-Pedic mattress. Way ahead of his day. I'm God, you know. I can do that. Nope. He was hungry. He's sitting at the well outside of Samaria while the disciples go into the city to look for food. Are you crazy? Take care of that. Bam! Grilled shrimp with garlic butter. And lamb shish kebabs with leeks and onions. And I mean, good lamb. Melt in your mouth lamb. I created the lamb. I cooked the lamb. Isn't that the best lamb you ever had? Oh, yes. I am God. And I was hungry. Nope. He's waiting for the disciples to bring back food from Samaria. Never used his power to meet his personal legitimate needs. Because he wanted to model for us trusting God. And waiting on God to provide for. Is that not what we struggle with so often when it involves temptation? It's the waiting. Isn't so often what gets us in trouble regarding sin, the timing? We don't want to wait. We don't want to wait, especially if we're convinced it's legitimate. It's legitimate. It's legitimate. So I don't want to wait. I am surprised by my own behavior sometimes, you guys. And how quickly I am pulled in the wrong direction. It's frightening. And so if you want to understand the power of sin and temptation, what's really going on, you can fight better when you begin to peel off some of the most obvious outer layers and just begin to really understand, oh, what is really going on? You want to fight sin better and face temptation better? You need to realize so often... So often, the power of temptation and sin is that it's always to some degree rooted, rooted in a refusal to believe that God is good. God is good. God is, we say it and we sing it, but I'm talking about in real life, in real time, where the rubber meets the road. God is good and is more dedicated to our good and aware of what that is than we are. Let me say it again. He's good. And he's dedicated to our good. Did you realize that? He's dedicated to your good and my good. And he's more aware of what that good is, what I really need than I am. You're like, I don't think so. Because I don't get what I want every time. I know. He's good. He's dedicated to our good and he's more aware of what that is than we are. So here's what happens, you guys. Almost always, when sin truly gets its grip on you, it involves, to some degree, a character assassination of God. You say, what? Where Satan just nudges you and says, you know what? God's not really good to you. I know you say that. He's good to other people. Look around. Look what other people are getting. Look at the kind of lives they have. He's actually not good to you. And he's not going to take care of you. You keep saying you're trusting God. You're trusting God. How's that worked out for you? He doesn't take care of you. He's not going to take care of you. 
So you, here's how, here's what goes next. So you better do something for yourself and you better do it now. Make it happen. Make something happen. Go for it. If you've lived long enough, you could probably, we could spend the next hour standing. Give me a testimony of how that worked out the last time you went for it. When you thought, God isn't doing so I. That's how it gets us. But it involves a character assassination of God. He's not really good. He's not going to take care of you. You've got to act. You've got to act. And oh, by the way, it's not wrong what you want. It's legitimate. Strategies for taking us down. Listen to me. You can be legitimately hungry for food, security, affirmation, meaningful work, significant relationships. Are any of those things sinful in and of themselves? No. We're made. We need food. We long for affirmation. We long to be loved. We we want a measure of security. He made us in his image as workers. We want meaningful work. None of that. We're relational just like he is. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. None of that is sinful in and of itself. But the moment you get so hungry that you shift from desiring that thing to demanding that thing and wanting it more than God, you just stepped onto a very dangerous and destructive path that the Bible has a word for, idolatry, idolatry. You just stepped on the dangerous, destructive path of idolatry, where you take a good thing, it's good, and you make it an ultimate thing. That you want more than God. And when that happens, that thing or person or cause or idea or hope, whatever it is, that now rules you, drives you, and controls your emotions. In a way that, stay with me, you say, okay, whatever. So I'm, I'm the loser. It just affects me. I wish. When that happens... It now wreaks havoc on your vertical relationship with God and all your horizontal relationships with people around you, especially those closest to you. It wreaks havoc on your vertical relationship with God because idolatry will destroy intimacy with God. And you say, I just don't feel close to God. I just feel distant. My spiritual life just seems dry and shallow. You may not need a better study Bible with great notes. You may not need colored pencils. You may not need better worship CDs. Is it possible that without even realizing, could you have stepped onto a path and not realize you did it? Oh, super weak. With gusto say, yes. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart's deceitfully wicked and who can know it? Some of the worst things we do, we can be the last ones to know we did it. Because it's this internal stuff we do long before you do some heinous action and people say that's not like her that's not like him if you'd seen their heart and what had been transpiring what they'd been thinking what they'd been yielding to and how they had shifted it would make perfect sense very few people are truly bizarre i know our world is just pushing 
untold numbers of people into the land of bizarre. That's bizarre. That's a chemical imbalance. No, it's an imbalance. I'll tell you, an imbalance of sin. I want what I want, even if it's more than I want God. And there you go. There you go. There you go. It will wreak havoc on your vertical relationship with God. There just won't be intimacy because he said he's a jealous God. You can have no other gods before me. If he sees that you're actually living for this, you won't have sweet, intimate, satisfying fellowship with him. And it wreaks havoc on people around you because you will now step on people, crush people, and do whatever it takes to get that thing. Because I must have it. In fact, here's the bottom line, you guys. Any, I'm going to use a word that may shock you. That we put just certain people in that category and say, well, I'm never guilty of that. The bottom line is anything that functions in your life as more important than God will ultimately run your life and ruin your life. And it will drive you to be an addict. That's not too strong a term, folks. The Bible doesn't have the word addict. Bible doesn't have the word addiction. Guess what the Bible has? Idolater and idolatry. It's the same. Addiction and idolatry are the same thing because an addict is simply someone who now wants something so badly they'll do anything to get it. You watch them just wreck relationships all around them, jobs, their own health. I want this so badly I'll do anything to get it, even break laws even hurt people that I truly love. Addiction is idolatry. Addiction is idolatry. When you put something as more important than God and you say, I have to have it and I have to have it now. I can't live without it. I have to have it and I have to have it now. We are all by nature as sinners prone to addiction or idolatry. Taking something else And making it paramount in our lives and saying, I live for that now. I build my world around that. Whether it's kids, job, image, you name it, a cause. And when it happens, it's ugly. And so often when it happens, everybody sees it but you, right? I've tried to help people with true addictions on drugs and alcohol. And it's almost like, oh my goodness, don't you see? No, they don't. Because they want what they want so badly. It blinds you and binds you. It blinds you and binds you. And we are all at points guilty of this. And the sooner you recognize it, the sooner you'll be able to fight better. Is there an area of your life where you've been guilty of saying, all I want is. But the moment you start to say, and God doesn't seem to be providing. Then you'll cross the line. I must. I must. I'm going to have to take care of myself. I'm going to have to act now. When idolatry or addiction kicks in, you'll do anything to get it. Anything to get it. And here's another tip off. Just like light on the dashboard, right? Your emotions will be volatile and raw. You say, oh, it's just 2020. It was a rough year. That's why I'm like that. It was a rough year. But it's still worth saying, if you spent the year with just raging emotions. We cannot control the entire world and nation and culture around us, but we can control ourselves. Say, what is going on with me? When idolatry 
or addiction kicks in, your emotions will stay volatile and raw, easily erupting with anger or fear at anyone who gets in your way. One of Satan's favorite strategies is to take a legitimate thing, a need, and convince you to make it an ultimate thing that's more important than God. And therefore now I must have it at all costs. Number three, let me show you another temptation that he's still using from this passage. Satan wants you, number three, to reject any path that includes suffering. Oh, that can't be what God wants me to do. I think I might suffer. So what are my other options? Right? He wants you to reject any path that includes suffering. You kind of take a glance at it and say, well, if it includes suffering, I'm not stepping on that path. I wouldn't do that. I'm not going to head in that direction. That's what he's doing with Jesus in verses 5 to 7. Look at it again. Verses 5 to 7. And the devil took him up and showed him All the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it's been delivered to me and I give it to my will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Do you know what he's doing? He's offering Jesus a shortcut to what his father has already promised him will be his, but it will be his because he endures suffering with his life and death and resurrection. In fact, the entire mission and purpose for which he came and the glory that will be his one day will be thwarted if he gives into this in this moment. He's offering a shortcut to something God the Father. In Psalm chapter 2, you can go back there and read it. God the Father has already given Jesus the nations. You are my son, and to you I give you the nations. Revelation shows us it's coming. Revelation 15, it says, And all the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and of his son. It's coming. It's been promised. But here's a shortcut. Satan loves to offer us a shortcut to what our Father has already promised us that will actually destroy the whole deal. That's still one of his favorite strategies. Satan says, oh, you can have it now. You can have it all. And you don't have to suffer. There's an easier way around this. And don't make a mistake right here. You're like, but Jesus was God. So that was not a temptation. He's like, oh, pish posh, get out of here, Satan. Not going to bite on that. Are you kidding me? Do not over spiritualize and forget that Jesus was fully human and fully God. So, was this offer from Satan attractive to him in that moment? Yes. Oh, yes. In his humanity, you guys, we don't have to guess. He recoiled from suffering as much as we do. He was no masochist that went looking for suffering. He was fully committed to pleasing his father and found suffering along the way. But, oh, 
This was a struggle for his human flesh. Remember how he prayed in the garden? We get on down towards the end in Luke 22. We'll get there years from now. In the garden. Oh my goodness. In the garden, he agonized in prayer, sweating great drops of blood, crying out to his father, not once, not twice, but three times saying, oh, father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. What cup? The cup of suffering God's wrath for our sin on the cross. Nevertheless, not my will. His human will was to avoid it. His human will was to be offered some other way. But he knew on a God level But when he left the heavenlies why he'd come. But this is how real his flesh was, you guys. He said, I know why I've come, but oh God, if there's any other way, have you thought of another way? Please. We share the same temptation that he faced to avoid suffering. Tell me there's a shortcut. Tell me there's another way. Satan loves to offer us a pain-free path. That the Father has already promised will be ours if we persevere in suffering and pleasing Him. My goal is not to suffer. My goal is to please God. And as you truly seek to please God at all costs, refusing to cave into the world's ways and your own flesh, you will suffer. You will suffer. He suffered, and we will suffer. He suffered, and we will suffer. I know this won't get me on primetime cable television, this message. It, it, won't, it won't get me my next best-selling book. I'll title it, He Suffered, and You Will Too, Big Time. It would just languish on Amazon. Just, oh, wow, five copies sold on that. What's up there? It's a message we don't want. It's a message we don't want to hear, and we don't want to live. He suffered, and we will suffer. So let me help you here. Everything starts to make sense. If you're sitting here thinking, that's just totally weird, Brad. What am I supposed to do with that? Everything starts to make sense when you understand God's goal and you keep eternity in view. When you don't understand God's goal and you lose sight of eternity and your world shrinks down no bigger than right here, right now, this will make no sense. But if you can keep God's goal in mind and eternity in view, God's goal in mind and eternity in view, it helps tremendously. God's goal is not to give you your best life now. Did you know that? My best life is coming. I have eternal life now. I have God's spirit now. I have his help now. I have direct access to his throne. But my best life, oh, for crying out loud, this is not my best life. That's why I say, Maranatha, Lord Jesus. I don't care to see the rest of my children get married. I don't care to stay and see any more grandchildren. That's right. If he wants to come today, he has my full permission. 
because I can't wait for my best life to start in the presence of the most glorious being in the universe, Jesus. And I can't wait to see this earth remade as he originally intended it to be with no sin, no curse, no suffering, no brokenness. And Jesus reigning and ruling over a new creation and a new heaven and earth. Maranatha, come quickly. That's when my best life begins. But until then, I want to lay hold of everything he's given me to persevere in pleasing him. And pleasing him. And pleasing him. And so for that to happen, I've got to know. He intends to use suffering to make me more like Christ. Suffering actually has a purpose. It's redemptive. He assigns it something valuable. I know that's, that's bizarre in our culture. We have a culture now that has no place for suffering, right? Zero. I hope you realize other cultures in other parts of the world actually do better than we do. Because in America, we've bought into, I should never suffer. I should never suffer. And if I do, it's somebody's fault. If I do, it's somebody's fault. Who can I blame? Who can I blame? Who can I blame? Who can I blame? I should never suffer. And the goal in life is happy and free to do whatever would make me happy. And therefore, suffering is nothing but an interruption to my main goal in life. So it's bad. That is the large thinking of Americans. And sadly, Christians have bought into it. So that now it's like, oh, I'm a Christian. All that means is it's God's job now. To get hard stuff out of my life and give me what I want, when I want it, if I pray the right formulistic prayer. If I do it right. If that's your thinking, you will just keep doing so poorly with suffering. You'll either run from it, try to pretend it's not happening, or melt down in the middle of it. But when you know... Don't hear me saying, oh, good, let me suffer some more. But when you know, even this past year, I struggled. There were hard things, new, fresh, hard things that happened with my extended personal family, with a church family. But it makes such a difference when I could say, oh, God, grow me. I've got growing to do. Use this. Take me to the next level. Thank. I would prefer peacefulness. But if, but if this is going to happen, and I know God is sovereign, he's allowed it into my life, into our nation, into our church. Grow me. Root me. Change me. Make me more like Jesus through this. When you understand his goal and you keep eternity in view, it changes how you persevere in suffering. And you're not as tempted to those shortcuts, shortcuts, shortcuts. And you don't buy into those lies. There's a way to do this and not suffer. That's a lie. That's a lie. The Bible actually teaches our Savior suffered, and so will we. When you actually look at the Bible, it'd be great if more people did. I'm talking about Christians. You'll see that suffering is the normal Christian life, not the exception. We tend to say, What am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? I'm tithing, I'm hosting a small group, people are spilling stuff on my carpet. Surely God would bless me, protect me. I shouldn't have prostate cancer. I shouldn't have lost my job. Give that to the person who won't host a small group and isn't tithing. That's our humanistic, right? I'm doing good things, right things. Nothing bad should happen to me. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches suffering is the normal Christian life. 
And it teaches there's an important place for suffering. That's why you'll find verses all through the Bible like James 1, 2 to 4. Count it all. Joy! When! Not if. When you fall into all kinds of trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Perfect doesn't mean sinless, you guys. It's the word in the Greek that means mature, grown up, more whole. Because notice how he says perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Could we just be honest for a minute? Don't you get around certain people, even Christians, who know a lot of Bible, but you say to yourself, something's missing. They don't seem complete. And so they come across in a way, often, I'm not meaning to be unkind, you guys, but often, do you know what's missing? They haven't suffered much yet. They just haven't suffered much yet. Our suffering changes how we treat and relate to other people and even how our theology begins to shape up suffering. There's a place. It doesn't tear me down. I may move slower and I may have limitations I didn't have before, but I'm more like, I am more complete. Brad Bigney is more complete from having rebellious older kids that broke his heart and are still some breaking his heart. Brad Bigney is more complete by having some health crisis that just terrified me I didn't want. Brad Bigney is more complete with a precious wife who struggles to get up our stairs because she has transverse myelitis. I wouldn't have asked for any of these things, but these things have made me a better pastor for you and a better, more mature Christian who's more useful Having our marriage trials hit the fan in the first three years with me saying, I married the wrong person. And her saying, I don't love you anymore. I have zero feelings for you. We're used by God to make me more complete and useful. I don't look back on all those things and say, oh, how I might be serving God now if those things hadn't happened. Oh, praise God for those things. He uses our suffering to mature us and root us and cause us to keep eternity in view and to let go of some of the things that we insist on and build our worlds around. It changes. That's why 1 Peter 4 says, Beloved, do not be surprised. Are we not constantly surprised? Whoa! That's hard. Didn't see that coming. Shouldn't be happening. Do not be surprised. Do not be surprised. At the fiery trial, when it... Do you see the word when has been used in two passages? When, not if. When, stop being surprised. When you meet trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. I'm sorry, I jumped back to the other one. Test as though something strange were happening, but rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's suffering. Do you realize as you suffer as a believer, you're sharing in the suffering of your Savior? It's part of our maturation process. And you grow in your intimacy with Him. Go to that Philippians 3 passage. I mean, I don't mean go there. But when you go there and you see that prayer that Paul prayed, it's like, that I may know Him. And the power of His resurrection, we're like, yeah, I want to know Him. Oh, I want to 
And then we always like kind of mumble, and the fellowship of his sufferings, uh, don't know about that. All three are right there, Paul said, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Like, oh, I'll take two out of three, please. Like we're scooting our tray through a buffet line. Oh, pass on the Brussels sprouts. Give me the roast beef and all. It's like, you just see it over and over and over and over and over. Satan wants to tempt you and offer you a pain-free path or a shortcut to something your father's already promised is yours. But very often, the actual process of getting there includes suffering and you will short-circuit what God intends to do by avoiding it. So isn't there any hope for us? Oh, as we face temptation, yes. We've got the example of Jesus in his humanity resisting temptation, the same kinds of temptations that we face with the Spirit and God's Word. The Spirit and God's Word. And that's what we have. But Jesus came to be more than just your example. Seeing Him as your example does you no good if you don't have Him first as your Savior. Oh, He took on flesh, not to just be an example, but to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. To die with a physical body on a physical cross. A brutal death to pay for your sins so that you can be forgiven, made new, clean, whole in a world of brokenness. Oh, if you're here today or you're listening online, put your trust in Jesus. That he solved your biggest problem, your sin problem. And then your suffering will have significance. Your suffering will have redemptive value. You'll never suffer alone. He's with you in it. With you in it. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. And thank you for our Savior. Who faced the same kinds of temptations we do. And fought them in the same way with the same resources you've given us. Oh God, as we head into another year that looks fairly tumultuous. Thank you for what you've given us. May you give us by your spirit insight of what we can control. What we could do. If our feet keep slipping regarding identity and sonship. Lord, may this be the year that we're able to take a stand like never before. If we've been guilty of taking legitimate desires and making them ultimate demands that just add to the chaos in our lives, may this be the year we lay it down and repent and say, God, I'll wait on you. You are good. You are good. And you actually know what's best for me more than I do. God help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.